Hey folks, you're watching the Buckle Up Podcast, the Millennial's Guide to the BRI. I'm your host, Enzo Kong. If you're a nature lover or a mountain climbing fan, the country we're focusing on today needs no introduction. Nepal is not only one of the most amazing countries in the world in terms of sceneries and culture, but it's also a major partner of China in promoting the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm so glad to have Aneka Rajpandari with me today here. Aneka has just completed her Chinese-taught undergraduate degree in political science in Peking University, and is the very first Nepali to do so. Next time you see her, she will be doing her master's degree in Chinese politics in the Silk Road School, Renmin University. In our discussion, we discussed what the BRI has to offer for a developing country like Nepal. We also shed light on some of the challenges of doing business in Nepal, including the climate risks and the political instabilities, and the ways to mitigate them. Finally, Aneka shared with us what attracted her to come study in China and why more young people should do the same. Aneka is super intelligent and her views are truly mesmerizing. Please hit the subscribe button if you haven't already done so. And for now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Hi, Annika. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Enzo. Thank you for inviting me. And a massive congratulations for completing your undergraduate degree and picking you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Now, you have been staying in Nepal for the um, past over a year, right? So, and, but I'm sure it's not a pleasant time because your country has been pretty hard hit by COVID. Can you describe the situation right now? Okay. So very briefly, because there's a lot of information out there already, but um, I mean, a month or two before it was pretty bad. We were in a very strict lockdown, but now... Uh, it seems like we're waiting for a third wave at the moment, but the average case every day is around 2,000, 2,300. But then again, it's, uh, the highest was recorded in May, I think, 12. But also around 2,000 are also being recovered every day. So right. I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly if that's a good news. But again, you and know, the population is 28 around million? 30 million. Right. Around 30 million. Yeah. But that's so, not, yeah. That's not a lot, right? That's not a lot, yeah. yeah. And also just the, the fact that the cases as well as the recovery is a similar thing might be a good news, but just the fact that we're not very prepared is very quite scary, right? So, um, so over till now, there has been like around 10,000 deaths and there are around mm. like 700,000 infected so far. And um, in terms of vaccine, I mean, I am mm-hmm. personally vaccinated already, both doses of Verisol, but that was back then in April when the Chinese government actually sent uh, the Verisol vaccines. They're oh, that's nice. Sinopharm. And they were actually for um, Nepali students, businessmen who are all related to China, maybe studying mm-hmm. there or doing business, mainly for them. They were, there was priority for us. That was so nice of the government. So like, I quickly got my vaccine, really hope I could really go back on time for my graduation, but oh well, that didn't happen. And I understand it's quite tough for the, both of the countries, right, to manage the cases. So besides that, we have, um, we kind of started doing the vaccine drive in January. That's, that's when we got the AstraZeneca vaccine. But of course, back then, the frontline workers were a priority. 
And so far, we have Johnsons and Johnsons right now. Mm-hmm. So we're still, uh, we're still not everyone is vaccinated. That's still a challenge in Nepal. So that's what's going on on the COVID update so far. And I imagine the situation is doing a big blow to the economy as well, given your reliance on tourism and sightseeing, yeah. everything. So, um, yeah. I mean, the economy is certainly something we can talk about later. And mm-hmm. what about something about politics? So I heard that the current prime minister is uh, Mr. Duba, who has only yeah. been holding office since July. So, yeah. and that was after the um his predecessor, Mr. Oli from the Communist Party of Nepal, was removed as PM by the Supreme Court. And so what we are seeing is the dissolution of the Nepal Communist Party. And the recent events have actually provoked strong reactions from the Chinese state media and the netizens who are flat out calling the current PM Duba um, pro-India or anti-China. So in your opinion, do you think this assessment is fair and are the reactions justified? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I'm quite interested to address this matter. So as you know, Duba got into power and so for those who don't know, Nepal has two communist parties. <laughs> one ah. is Mao Center and one is Marxist-Leninist. It's a little confusing I, when I was doing my research. I understand it's very confusing, <laughs> yeah. but okay. So that's the difference. And so now that Dioba is in power, after the great fallout of the communist party, and they were actually in alliance both of the communist party, now we have Congress in power. And it's, yeah, like you mentioned there, it's he's very known to be pro-US, pro India. And I mean, I wouldn't blame the Chinese news for calling him like pro-US or pro-India because of a lot of decisions he made in the past. And one main, uh, quite a big blow that happened was the Budi Gondaki hydropower project back then. So um, what the story goes that in 2000, I think around 17 was it, it was the Communist Party, Nepal Communist Party, that back then the prime minister they just signed um, the hydropower project to a Chinese company named Photopa. Right? right. So back then, uh, there was a lot of issues that they didn't really review the company. The company company is a bit controversial. So there, the people were kind of mad too. But anyway, it was given to the Chinese company. But when Dilba came into power, he just scraped it off the Chinese company. And there was also news that it, it was given to an Indian company. So it has been under so much controversy and in so much of hassle that people, I mean, that's just one of the main big, big reason that people call him um, an Indian center, you know, pro-Indian um, prime minister, politician. But I, I personally feel like that shouldn't matter. And I don't think whatever happened back then, there has been so, so much has happened already since then. So I don't think we should really judge him based on what happened then. Mm-hmm. Personally, that's what I think because right now there's there are some some things that he is doing right. I don't really so far. I mean, it's just been one month into power, right? So I don't think he has anything that much of a pro India, pro US, and anti China at all so far. So I feel like I understand the Chinese media. Everyone is nervous. I saw articles on that too, but I understand. I think I um, mean he might be worth a chance. So yeah, it's, it's still yeah, it's still too early to say, right? I feel like it's too still too early to say because a lot has changed since then. Mm-hmm. So, but what has yeah, sure. And and what what is more certain is the historical Nepal Chinese relations because um, 
if you look at the history, uh, the, the, the history of the two countries actually date back to the fifth country when there were visits between the monks, cultural exchanges. And, and of course, we share a long border of over 1,400 kilometers along the Himalayas. So it, it, the, the two countries have been historically friendly despite some That's occasional nice. border disputes yeah. maybe. Mm-hmm. And that also brings us to Nepal's role in the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm-hmm. So um, your country has signed the Memorandum of Understanding for the Belt and Road in, back in 2017. It has joined um, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank one year earlier, and also some more agreements signed in 2019. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us what does such a global initiative have to offer to a country like Nepal? And what does it mean to you and the people there? First of all, I have to mention that the Belt and Road Initiative is so brilliant. Reviving the Silk Road is really such a brilliant idea. And I mean, back then, like you mentioned, the history of Nepal, it's really not only with PRC, it really dates back to back then when the monks came in, right? There's um, the Nepali princess married to the Tibetan prince. Back then, there's that. There's Arniko who built the White Takoba. There's a Miaoing temple over there. I don't know if you know about it, mm. but it's quite famous. It was the biggest architecture during the Yuan Dynasty. So that a lot of things are there, and I'm so glad that this is reviving. So that hopefully there will be more research on not only the economic aspect but also the cultural okay. aspect right. of BRI, like the soft power, like diplomacy. So. And talking about BRI, I feel like before we dive into this, it's very, very important in terms of Nepal to understand um, the 2015, because I feel that was such an important year, not to, like personally for me too, because that's when I went to China. Mm-hmm. But, but also back then in April, there was a devastating earthquake. And um, April 25, it was a really bad earthquake. I personally had to give my high school exam under a tent. But anyway, after that, uh, it didn't stop there. Like after the earthquake, we finally got our constitution. Like after all these years of having an interim constitution, we finally got our constitution. But because India wasn't happy with our constitution, they imposed a blockade on us, an economic blockade. By the blockade, I was already in China, so I didn't really firsthand experience it. But though I could, uh, I would listen to what my parents would tell me about like how bad the situation is. I will look at the news and I would see long line of petrol, like just to get petrol. I saw petrol being sold in black market. And that is such a huge issue over here. And personally, my grandmom, my late grandmom, um, she was, uh, she's like, she was like a cancer victim. And she also had to go for checkups in the hospital. There was medical supply shortage. So I remember all the struggle struggle back then. So I feel like, I like in a more personal level, people to people level, there's so much grudge against what happened to India towards India due to this matter. Mm-hmm. Back then, it was only in power. So everyone, if there's one thing that even people who don't support Oli agree on, is his decision to look towards the north to look towards China during that time. And that was very smart of him. I mean, um, when we were in total shortage of everything, China really, really helped us during that time. And I feel that it was such an eye-opening experience for not just our government, but also for the people. So I feel like that is so important to understand before we head towards BRI. So that was back in 2015. And of course, BRI in 2017 right. was signed by um, the Maoist uh, the communist party but the maoist faction 
And only was only in the office back then? No, not during the BR, like not during the signing of the okay. BR. So, but then if of course his, the other faction was, and the one that signed the Budi Gundaki project back then to the Chinese company. So, um, so what, what over here, what we have to understand the BRI and AIB is like, BRI is a Chinese initiative, AIB is a Chinese, China-led initiative, mm -hmm. right? So India is not a part of BRI, but it receives loans, grants from AIB, right? So I feel like that's what we have to understand. And so far, I feel like in, in terms of Nepal, AIB has only um, started, like approved one project, and that will, that must be the upper tissue hydropower project mm -hmm. uh, i think it was around 19 billion us dollars project so the first one which was in 2019 so um so for nepal aib is more like world bank or any other bank so i feel like it's probably still too soon to see more engagement from aib i guess i understand that nepal is also quite complicated <laughs> too but in terms of AIB, there's only been that one project, and I haven't really personally seen much um, involvement of AIB to here. And in terms of Belt and Road Initiative, it's I feel like um, uh, there's been so much going on already, and especially after I think it was 2000, sorry, 2016 or was it 2017 when Oli made a grand visit to China and that's when he brought his whole delegation there was a lot of people and that's when he actually signed a trade and transit treaty which is like pretty much the milestone already mm -hmm. like everybody appreciates it that's like 2015 we did like you know realize that we need independence economic independence from India but 2016 I think must be 16 or 17 was when we actually realized it <laughs> And we we finally got the port, like we China opened few ports for us. We also got independence from internet service, a lot of more things. So trade and transit was such a huge win-win for us through the BRI. Of course, there are other projects too, right? So um, is there anything you wanted to? Well, um, so you, you mentioned India's role in the um regional dynamics, which yeah. is huge, obviously. So I think one project we cannot overlook would be um, the Trans-Himalayan Railway linking Karong and Kathmandu. Yeah. So that was actually a plan yeah. that was announced in the Baton Road Forum back in 2019. Yeah. And under the proposal, the, um, the railway will link um, Karong, which is in Southern Tibet in China, to um, the capital of Nepal, Kathmandu, and eventually reach Lumbini on Nepal's border with India. And um, since uh, and in the same year, a feasibility study was carried out. And the same study also revealed that there has been some geological challenges to the project because um, actually 90% of the track on the Nepalese territory mm -hmm. would have to run over bridges or in tunnels, not to mention the susceptibility to earthquakes. So actually mm -hmm. since 2019, um, not a lot of significant progress has been made and the financial arrangement, arrangements are also yet to be fixed. So can you possibly shed light on what's happening on the ground and what do you think, um, how do you think the project will move forward in the future? Okay, so first of all, like, um, the BRI projects, as far as I remember, I read that there were actually 35 pro proposed projects from the Nepal side. But then I guess it was too much and it was dropped to nine projects in the end. Mm. So this is one of the nine projects. 
and overall um i feel like it's such an exciting project for um a developing country i mean we just graduated from being a least developed country this year so for a developing country like nepal it's so exciting to get infrastructure like for us the idea of a developed country is having a road to your house like mm -hmm. that is development for us like even right now i live in the outskirts of Kathmandu slightly and it's just i feel it the how much of a need you need how much you need a proper road to your house so like they're still constructing and it's such it's just a mess during monsoon especially so i feel like the whole it's so exciting to know that a train is coming to Kathmandu like that that's huge and especially the fact that uh, for us the train the only train we actually have access to is pretty much to the south in india as you know that nepal is um bordered by like in the west and east it's india south also india there's only china towards the north so um and it's not only about convenience for people traveling around it's also about trade is that right also uh, yeah exactly it's also about trade so but what i want to actually shed light over here is that I mean, it's great that the, everybody sees it in a positive light, but I feel, and there, of course, you mentioned that there's so many, like, trouble of, like, the, uh, the geo, geological the, challenges, the challenges and, yeah. right? The topography is so difficult in the north. I mean, of course, it's so difficult over there, earthquakes and everything, avalanches mm. going on. So I feel, of course, those are in mind, but I feel like besides what's, besides the problem that, will occur or you know while making making the rail i also believe that we should think about what will happen after like is nepal even ready for a train i don't think anyone has thought of that over here because i'm not saying that we shouldn't get a train but i feel like nepal should really assess do an assessment of whether they can are ready for a train because of course if you have a train over here you need you know manpower to operate it if it's if right. something goes wrong you need people to fix it so and honestly we don't have that people we don't everyone there's a huge brain drain problem over here we don't have that people so i'm just worried that that's one issue that could occur so i don't know how much of assessment has been done in that end part a number two is the trade deficit is a huge huge issue right mm -hmm. now the overall trade deficit of Nepal has crossed I think around a thousand billion, and with China only, there's already I think around hundred sixty billion. So that's actually a lot, a lot for Nepal, of course. And I mean, the biggest deficit is still with India. That's like mm -hmm. six hundred billion. But still, if if there's a train, then that's gonna just skyrocket, isn't it? So are we ready to, you know, in in like export stuff are we ready with you know when the train is ready to i mean it just feels like a long way to go but <clears throat> believe me or not things happen very slow in nepal so i just wonder if we're actually ready for that at all and so, and, and the current currently what what which are the products that are most exported currently i mean if you just I, have you been through Taobao? If you just search, <laughs> <laughs> if you like Alibaba, right, Taobao. So if you just look into Taobao, like you just type Nepal, you will see so many like mainly spiritual products. I don't know if you like, mm. a lot of those, um, I don't know what it's called in English, but there's a, those beads that you use when you like pray. Uh, I'm not exactly we'll sure. We'll attach a screenshot for our audience to see. But, oh yeah, sure. It's called Rudraksha. 
and then it's so your user when you pray it's like a Buddha, it's more for buddhist chanting right mm. so i saw that a lot in beijing too especially older generations mm. using it so like those are a lot there's like those singing bowls i don't know if you know what singing bowls are you just hit it and then it kind of helps there's also different kinds of according to your chakra in your body so those aspects like so much of spiritual products of mm. course besides that there's a whole thing called which is like apparently some kind of um, Nepal style so maybe it's more Indian looking you know dresses or like you know those kind of products mm-hmm. so I guess that's also one kind of attraction but of course there's also pashmina I don't know if you understand pashmina there's a kind of um, it's usually like scarves material made out of I think like sheep for a certain kind of cashmere similar mm-hmm. to that so those are the products that are going out and that in comparison to what comes from China, my daily products consider like daily use. I just use a lot of Chinese products without even like consciously knowing that I'm using it. I mean, everyone does in Nepal. So compared to that, what we're do what we're sending in is pretty much nothing, <laughs> nothing. So I feel like we there's that that's such an important aspect that we have to think about. And so in terms of the railway, I feel like I can just tell you what people are thinking here. It just feels mm-hmm. like the like a really long-term project because we've we personally Nepali people are kind of tired of waiting for projects to get done like our hydropower projects take forever to get done so this since I mean like projects in our country take so long how long will like a cross-border project take so that's kind of what people think right now so I feel like right now the, the focus should be on like how will we even prepare for this I mean of course it is important to you know know how to build it and like be ready for when we start but also after it's done hmm. so i feel like i want to make that point over here that you know it's that, that's china a good point be, china is ready but nepal isn't i personally don't think nepal isn't mm. so now, maybe please 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 now um now when we talk about the belt and road initiative Trade is obviously one thing we want to help the developing countries improve their um, deficit. But uh, the other thing is investment. So if the investments are able to bring jobs, that's also a boost to the economy, the local economy. So, um, for example, we've been seen, seeing two major projects in the poll since uh, the establishment of the Berlin Road. Um, for example, you have the Hongshi Shivam yeah. cement facility that was completed yeah. in 20. 20- 2018, and also the development of the Tamakoshi Free Hydroelectric yeah. Project in the Laka and Ramashab districts. So mm-hmm. can you tell us what, what are the importance of those deals? What are the implications in terms of um, the country's um, self-dependence in terms of cement supply or electricity mm-hmm. supply? And have those projects hit some roadblocks or difficulties um, during the process of implementation? Yeah, so, um, well, like, there isn't much, um, we don't really talk that much about the cement, honestly, like, it isn't really, like, a happening news, but, I mean, there were some times when there was a controversy and stuff, but then Hongshu cement has had, had a really good impression. I will get into other aspects, too, but in terms of, like, um, it is, of course, like, um, the highest level foreign direct investment in Nepal to date, in terms of, right. like, modern cement plant. So it's definite, it's also a joint venture, right? So Hongshu Cement is 70% owned by Hong Kong Red Lion Cement, number three, something, a subsidiary of 
like Net China's Hong Shu Group, right? And 30% owned by the Nepali um, Holdings, yeah. right? So, but, and I mean, like, I remember reading this article that in 2019, Nepal needed about around 10 million ton of cement. So that was Nepal's demand. And Nepal would usually import around like a little more, like 11 million of cement, which is, so the demand was around like 1.3 billion uh, US dollars. And so they would import a bit more as well. So what, what Hongshu, like when Hongshu came in and then started like in, increasing production and like like getting settled in Nepal, they actually like was a, they were actually help, actually were able to help us save like around 200 million US dollars in foreign exchange costs. So that's actually huge. That's like huge. That's huge, and, definitely. Yeah. And yeah. besides that, I mean, I, I just, I also want to get into part where they're actually like um, proactively, except right now at, during the pandemic, uh-huh. have really helped in like relief and assistance, like COVID relief and assistance work. And recently, a month ago or two, like the Dioba, a month ago, mm-hmm. uh, Dioba actually, the government actually like um, awarded them an, an honorary award. It was actually the first Chinese company to get it and for assisting Nepal. So I guess that's, um, I'm glad that they were able to do that and it's just recognizing their effort and was definitely worth it. So in terms of cement, I feel like Hongshu cement, that's, I prefer summer, summarizes how people perceive Hongshu cement and how, what they have done for us so far, right? Um, and uh, and in terms of the, the hydroelectric project. Hydropower, right? So, um, I, I initially like, I got kind of confused personally because there's actually Tamakoshi as well as Tamakoshi 3 because Tamakoshi oh. is the one that Nepal kind of did it on their own and they've already like finished it. But the one that we're talking about over here is Tamakoshi 3, which is signed, which was signed in 2019, I think. And is Tamakoshi a Nepali name? It is a Nepali name. Reminds me of something Japanese, but you know. Yeah, it actually might sound a bit Japanese, right? <laughs> and, um, but it was just inaugurated in 2021, last right. month, in fact. So it was by two Chinese companies. They joined hands with a Nepali company and invested around, I think, 500. Um, it's about like 56 megawatts of um, electricity. And it actually aims to contribute to like one percent of Nepal's GDP, which is already huge for us. And and it also provides a strong guarantee to Nepal's power supply. They actually aim to even sell the excess electricity to India. Mm-hmm. So, which is amazing to be honest, because monsoon at this moment is the worst possible season in Nepal. Like you never visit Nepal during monsoon; it's just um, disaster, literally a natural disaster everywhere. So they're just trying to turn out the worst season into energy and make advantage of it is just amazing. So, um, of course, like since the construction, I mean, the construction in 2010, there has been a lot of, a lot of um, challenges. One of the biggest most definitely be the earthquake. Because mm-hmm. after then, there were just a lot of reconstruction requirements throughout, right? So it also, <laughs> I think I heard that it said, I mean, set a record for being the longest shaft construction in Nepal or something. I think I heard that. And it's also um, labeled as a milestone um, project for us in Nepal relations. So, I mean, if that can work out, that's that's going to be the largest hydropower project in Nepal. 
And I've also I've also read that there have been there has been a reduction in capacity compared to the original proposal, which hasn't exactly pleased the local political parties or the citizens. Is that the case? Um, I I haven't heard much of this part because I think it's just that because it it happens in such long interval of times it's like people forget about it uh, and then it suddenly suddenly it's oh it's inaugurated so then people start talking about it and then suddenly it's dead and so would you say I the general like, the general sentiment is still positive i think it's still, still positive i told you that if a country is helping with infrastructure then it's mm. definitely positive i don't i mean of course there might i mean when it turns political there's definitely political parties especially opposing parties that mm. will have some strong opinion regarding it but besides that i think it's generally positive and of course i mean in terms of if one huge huge like um challenge in Nepal is definitely natural disasters because i recently heard that they were having the chinese i think the team were like uh out uh, trying to get rid of the debris due to the landslides going on right now so that's definitely a huge uh, problem in terms of the Tamakoshi project. But I don't think, exactly, I don't think it's like something that keeps on going on this discussion right now. It's just that it got inaugurated, now people are quiet, maybe, uh, maybe there's some change in the plan or project, then people will start talking again, and then it dies. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how, it's kind of like how social media works, right? <laughs> right. Now we've yeah. talked about how um, uh, long the time frame of some of these projects can be, maybe five years or even 10 years, decade. Yeah. But um, at the same time, we have also seen 10 changes in governments in as many years prior to the 2017 election that brought mm -hmm. Oli and his coalition of communist parties to power. So yeah. the, the thing is, um, if I'm a foreign investor and I look at the local political situation, um, how can you assure me that um, the instabilities would not have an impact on my investment? Honestly, I because I studied political science, there's very honestly there is no way to convince you how how to <laughs> how to get through it. I mean, I, maybe if I did business, I would have had a way to you know trick you to come in here, <laughs> but I I won't do that because that is what it is. Nepal is tough to do business. Because especially because of the political parties over here and how it's really not about ideology, but it's only about political parties. So our communist party is not exactly the, like very communist as people think how communist parties mm. would be, right? It's really only about being opposed to what's in power. So um, I'm like, sorry that I'm not, I'm not like, I can't give you, I can't convince you to come, come to Nepal because um, it, it is what it is. Like it is political instability. It has been here for so long. We're like an experiment lab. We're a chemistry lab. Like there's just a lot of experiment going on. Like there was monarchy, now a bit of democracy in here. There's federalism that just um, started, what, three, four years ago of sorts after 20 years of high, just we finally had our local elections. So it's, like bound, it's bound to be unstable. Like we're still exploring political systems. Mm -hmm. and being a multi-party de uh, democracy there's it's all experiment turmoil <laughs> so i feel like in terms of nepal that is something that of course like china must have a lot of difficulty challenge trying to understand nepal and its 
political instability. Like I'm pretty sure that's really tough for them. Now, when you talk about um the susceptibility to earthquakes of your country, as well as the mm-hmm. uh, how fragile the landscape is, I something just popped up my uh, on yeah. my head, and that's the potential for some cooperation in the climate adaptation projects, maybe, mm-hmm. as well as um sustainable finance, green finance, which China has a little bit of experience. Do you think that's an area that we can look for more cooperation in the future? Definitely, I feel like that would be great. In fact, if China can uh, proactively, in fact, um, do this with Nepal, that will also help to eliminate or at least decrease the whole impression that like people have of China that all oh, their projects are deteriorating the environment mm. and they don't really care about it because of course all of these infra- infrastructure projects definitely bring a lot of deforestation and pollution mm. and so like definitely people have that impression of China so if if they do this then that's definitely going to help mend their image on the whole uh, equal unfriendly China <laughs> image of theirs so I feel like that would that's such a good idea like that sh- they should definitely work on um, this Mm. Now, yeah. towards the final part of our talk, we must um, talk about the young people like ourselves. And Definitely. can you tell us what are, what are the most pressing issues facing the Nepali youth nowadays? And could the BRI possibly be a way out for some of the problems? So like when you, when you said it, when you, I can talk about this for another one hour, honestly, <laughs> but I won't do that. <laughs> but it's such a, because it's such an important thing to talk about in Nepal, like I mentioned earlier that there's like brain drain is such a huge problem over here because, well, naturally, people who study things like aeronautical engineering or, you know, mostly STEM, they come here and they're like, what am I going to do here? There's no opportunity. Maybe those who are from, a, you know, a better financial background might be able to start some of their own stuff, initiative startups, right? But those who usually don't which is pretty much most of the population Mm -hmm. here they will not try to sit around and go around government office not get things done get frustrated they will just you know want to get out of here and of course they're going to get better opportunities outside of Nepal and so that's such a huge huge problem I feel like for me personally I mean there are a lot of other issues regarding youth but of course in I feel like opportunity, job opportunity is such a huge issue, which is very unattractive for youths who study outside and then they come back to Nepal. They want to do something for Nepal, but they can't just because there is no opportunity here for you. But of course, the Nepal government, um, the only government, in fact, they did start this initiative under the Ministry of Finance. It's under the Ministry of, sorry, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And it's called the Brain Green Initiative, I think. And that's where kind of you register your university, your field and everything. And then the government can maybe like, you know, get you a job kind of thing. But that's a great initiative. That's a great start, honestly. But I, from people who have registered over there, they say that they only get emails and it's usually unnecessary emails. Like nothing much, not, 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 not much of an update that they would require. So none of them have really, really got a job through that. And um, I feel like, that's such a, such a huge issue. Even for me, I was personally worried about what am I going to do? Like study political science and go back to Nepal and mm-hmm. do what? People assume that I'm going to get into politics, but it's like once you study political science, you don't really want to do politics anymore. <laughs> At least that's for me. That's in my case. So brain drain 
is both skilled labor as well as unskilled labor. The West takes away our skilled labor, the Gulf takes away our unskilled laborers. So we're kind of, if you go to the villages of Nepal, if you trek Nepal and go to the villages, you will literally only find women, old people, and children. All the men are in Gulf countries. And they're usually a victim of huge infrastructure projects and um, human rights violations. So that's what's going on. But then again, the government won't do much about it. Why? Because remittance is such a huge, huge source of revenue for Nepal. So remittance coming from outside from these unskilled laborers in Gulf countries have been like a huge gift for us, I guess. That's also costing a lot of lives. I feel like for youth in Nepal, that's such a huge problem, opportunity. And it yeah. seems that the youth can definitely use some quality education opportunities and cultural exchange opportunities. So why don't we talk about you? Um, you, you first set foot in China in 2015. Yeah. Um, can you give us a picture of how it started? Did you, how, how did you come up with the idea? Did you get any support or resources from the local government? And how many people in uh, how many young people in Nepal are doing the same thing as, as you? Okay, so back then when I, in 2015, when I went there, it was, um, I mean, back then a lot of people didn't really, I mean, China was still a destination before, like even during my parents' time that China was a destination for education, but mainly for medicine, for medicine. Mm -hmm. So whenever I would tell people like, I'm going to China, they'd be like, why, could you, why are you going to China? Like, are you studying medicine? I was like, no, I'm like studying social sciences. And they would be very confused as to why I would choose China. And I was, I mean, it was actually my father who told me about China because uh, because of he used to work in the UN and he would keep going to China for work. And so he used to tell me about the development he has seen over time. And so I guess I was a bit frightened because I wasn't very sure if I could do everything in Mandarin. So it was definitely um, intimidating for me. But I, did, I realized that, I mean, being in Nepali, and I'm also fluent in English, and I can speak Nepali, and being, I mean, more culturally related with India, I can speak Hindi, mm. I can understand Hindi, then if I can speak Mandarin, I can talk with half of the world's population. <laughs> so, I mean, why wouldn't I miss out on this opportunity? So I definitely took on this um opportunity but of course another aspect that really motivated me was a scholarship as well mm. which is probably more common for a lot of students who study in China too um, because there they had it was very encouraging that I there was a Chinese government scholarship which was a full ride they would also provide a ticket back I mean to China as well as after you graduate so everything felt it was it was really nice just the fact that I, I all I have to do is study like all I have to do is study. I don't have to worry about having to, you know, make ends meet, you know, make ends meet or like, you know, pay my tuition, work like I can't work in China, of course, but you know, just the whole stress was not there. So I feel like I was like just studying in China, like China just made it easier for me to you know realize what I wanted to do. And what are the ways to get even more Nepalese students to come here to study? Is does it have to be does it have to do with more scholarships or more promotion in Nepal? What, what what's your take? I mean like um I feel like it's already an it's already attractive. China is already attractive. So I told you that back then people asked me why would I want to go to China? But now there's a lot of change. I tell people I'm studying in China and they're just 
genuinely very curious and impressed with me. Mm. So the narrative has really changed since then. And I mean, of course, there are efforts that could be made by channel side, but I feel like right now it's already attractive. Like the scholarship, not just scholarship, but people who are doing business over there, they already want to understand Chinese. Like I have a lot of people who want me to teach Chinese as well, mm. just to be able to speak with them. So they understand that being able to speak Chinese apparently helps with the trust with builds a Personally. kind of trust. Yeah. So that's, I mean, naturally, of course. So I feel like there's, it's already attractive. It's already attractive. But what um, I feel like we should be doing, Nepal should be doing, is also make this place more friendly for China, not only for business, but also in terms of other tourism aspects. I mean, we're already known for like trekking, adventure sports and all that. But tourism, there's a lot more that we still have to do. <laughs> I mean, 2020 was supposed to be, this supposed to be the tourism year in Nepal and that all crashed, that all crashed. And 2019 when Xi Jinping visited, it was such a great boost for us, but we, I mean, 2020 really blew it off. Mm. So we really missed a chance. So I feel like there's a lot to be done from our side too, to bring China, Chinese people here. What I know, I mean, I do know, I have a few friends in China who are studying Nepali. And that's so interesting because I'm so like, it's, it's nice to know that they're actually like interested or they want to work for the government later mm. and, you know, try to understand Nepal as well. So I do know that they have some exchanges with universities here. So I feel like that's a great step, but there's a lot more that could be done in terms of cultural, like linguistic exchanges. And just, you know, um, trying to explore more of the Silk Road, the, the history, because there's a lot more to be done. Absolutely. So, now, finally, we have been four years into um, the post entry into the BRI. Um, yeah. We the, a lot has happened. We are we are, we are still battling COVID. So, looking ahead, what is your take on um, uh, where this is heading? What is going to happen between Nepal and China? And do you have any general recommendations on how we can do things even better? Okay, so. Uh, in terms of recommendation, there's a lot, but what, what really comes in my mind right now is um, capacity building, like in terms of, because since every, whenever we talk about BRI, it comes in terms of infrastructure projects and mm. infrastructure projects can only be strengthened and made more sustainable if, the, if there is capacity building in local levels. So, right. where, so let's talk about the rail again, the railway that's coming through Kerung and Kathmandu to Kathmandu. That railway, like throughout, throughout the road, if where, wherever it passes through, if the localities can be empowered or maybe like encouraged to start their own businesses, um, teach them how to, you know, be more export friendly and all that, maybe that could work. Capacity building as in training people over here. So what I mean is just not just bringing, building an infrastructure project here, bringing your own people and working over here and then leaving without training people for a more sustainable project. Because that's kind of, I feel like what people have an impression of of China, that you just, you, you bring your project, you bring your own people, mm -hmm. you get things done and you leave. So mm -hmm. I hope like that's kind of something that I hope that doesn't happen. It's such an impact on sustainability. So that's that. And of course, like whenever things go wrong, I feel like it's people are very quick to blame China and not the other country as well, especially in terms of debt trap diplomacy mm -hmm. and you know the whole like people the care that's going on. Because honestly, it's not just China, it's also the other country responsible. 
you know everything is already set you should know if you're ready to take that grant right. that loan or not so the doing a SWOT analysis of yourself is so important. So I feel like there's no way you can just blame China on this. It's also the other country equally responsible. So that's that. And another aspect is definitely, we talk a lot about economic aspect, but definitely culture and social aspect. It's not just governments that have to build relations, but also public, also people to people. So I feel that's very important, especially in the border like, I feel like every country should know what's happening in the border as well, how the people are exchanging, crossing borders. In Nepal, India, it's, it's literally an open border. Like, I can just cross. We all, I also don't need a visa to go to India. So, um, open border over there. But also in um, China, for China, the bordering um, villages over there, <clears throat> I heard that I read in a book that um, people are pretty much free to trade over there. The relation is really good. The Nepal... The Nepali villages over there are very pro-China. They like mm. love China and how much they've benefited with that. And I mean, that definitely makes sense. You just see how the relation dynamics is with the people in the border, like on both sides. So I feel like that's so important. It's really not just the government. So that's there. And I, like I mentioned before, like people are, Nepali people are starting to speak Mandarin even more now. And I feel like well, recently, I uh, very recently, in a few years, uh, there, I think there's a new rule that younger Nepali officials, they have to learn Mandarin for a year before going to the Nepali embassy in Beijing. So I feel like that's a pretty legit rule, that it's a legit thing to do. I mean, at least even if you don't understand, can't be very fluent in one year, but I feel like that's a great effort. You at least know how it works. So I feel like um, Mandarin or trying to understand China. Now we've all had enough of India. Maybe it's time to look north too in that aspect too. So that, and finally, like I'm gonna blame Nepal again because in terms of our political turmoil, one of the main reasons is we don't have a unified national interest. So we have political parties that come and go and their foreign policy also come and go with them. There is mm -hmm. no united national interest that that's, and that's exactly why Yoba is called a pro-US, mm -hmm. pro-India position, because we don't have a unified national interest and a foreign policy. So yeah, that's pretty much what summarizes my perspective. Well, one thing I'm sure is that the Napoli people are very friendly people, and I see no mm -hmm. reason why we can have a more fruitful relationship in the future. Um, it's really nice. It's really nice talking to you, Anika, and I hope to see you soon. Take care. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you Andrew.